controversy continues to swirl around Alabama's new abortion restrictions, Iran continues to provoke the West, and two new Democratic candidates enter the race. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Wow, it is a busy, busy news day. We have a lot to get to. And I have some, I think, interesting analysis of where the abortion controversy goes from here. But first, losing your hair sucks, okay? Male pattern baldness runs in my family. Two out of three dudes will experience hair loss by the time they are 35. Introducing Keeps, the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair you have. These FDA products, approved products, used to cost so much, but now... Thanks to Keeps, they are finally inexpensive and easy to get. For five minutes now, starting at just 10 bucks every month, you will never have to worry about hair loss again. Getting started with Keeps is really easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes. Just answer a few questions, snap some photos of your hair. A licensed physician will review your information online and then recommend the right treatment for you. Then it is shipped directly to your door every three months. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you probably tried them before, but you've probably never gotten them for this price. Keeps is only 10 bucks to 35 bucks a month plus. Now you can get your first month for free, which is a hell of a deal for getting to keep your hair. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com slash Ben. That is K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben. Free month of treatment at keeps.com slash Ben. Go check them out right now. Keeps, hair today, hair tomorrow. Again, that's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben and get that first month of treatment for free. Go check it out right this very instant. Okay, so the obvious controversy of the day continues to be this Alabama law. And there are other states that are now pushing for new restrictions on abortion, which on a moral level is fantastic because obviously in the view of pro-lifers everywhere, abortion is the grave moral sin that threatens the soul of our nation. It has been so ever since Roe versus Wade. The notion that a woman has a right to kill a human life within her with the help of her doctor is not written anywhere in the Constitution. It is nowhere in the Declaration of Independence. Folks who are making the argument that abortion is a woman's right are doing so based on the absolute nonsensical case of Roe versus Wade. We explained yesterday all the details of Roe versus Wade, the emanations from the penumbras, the idea that everyone gets to define what human life is of their own accord, which, of course, is sheer nonsense. If that, that logic taken to its ultimate conclusion allows you to dehumanize anybody that you wish to victimize for your own particular purposes. And unfortunately, that really is what abortion is on a broad scale. On a broad scale, the attempt to prevent the understanding that human life exists in the womb for the sake of convenience has become part of a rote thought process by which feminists claim that abortion is nothing more than the dismissal of a polyp, the removal of a polyp. That's utter sheer nonsense. It is deceptive nonsense at that, and it is morally dangerous nonsense as well. So on a pure moral level, an attempt to bar abortion is not just an attempt to protect the life of the unborn. It's an attempt to protect the soul of a country that seeks to prevent the loss of that life. And you don't have a right to abortion. You do have a right life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from the Declaration of Independence is the way that it's expressed in the Constitution of the United States, both the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments, which ironically and perversely have been used as an excuse for abortion by the Supreme Court. It is both the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments that say that life cannot be removed without due process of law. This is a human life in the womb. And all the counter arguments that are currently being used, that it's a polyp, nonsense, that human life is, is arbitrarily defined, nonsense. Everyone knows that human life begins at conception. Now, the, the real question is, on a logical level, when does quote-unquote personhood begin? But the truth is that you don't have to believe that an embryo is the equivalent of a fully grown baby on a scientific level to acknowledge that human life cannot be removed. Human life, incipient human life, as I have called it, that it, you don't have to argue that that is the same thing as a 35-year-old man in order for you to argue that this does have countervailing weight and that that embryo does have, in fact, a right to life under the Constitution of the United States. Personhood amendments are simply designed to extend the notion of personhood to all human life. And it is a unique human life, just the same way that an unfertilized egg is not a chicken, but a fertilized egg is a potential chicken. Okay, the fact is that is a chicken life, just the same way a fertilized human egg would be a human life. That is a human life and a potential baby, right? That is the way that the science works. Okay, so the media are up in arms about this. The Democrats are up in arms about all of this. There are several other states that are now considering similar laws. Missouri has an act that's called the Stand for the Unborn Act. It would ban abortion as soon as a doctor can detect heart or brain activity in the embryo, which is basically the equivalent of the Georgia heartbeat bill. The Alabama bill is a little stronger. It says from moment of conception, there can be no abortion. The Missouri bill and the Georgia bill are effectively 
heartbeat bills. The bill includes alternative language to deal with the possibility that such an early ban could be ruled unconstitutional. If that happens, it becomes a 14-week ban. And if that cutoff date is deemed unconstitutional, it becomes an 18-week ban. And then, if necessary, a 20-week ban. The legislation also prohibits minors from obtaining an abortion without written parental consent in most cases, which, again, makes sense, considering that if you're in school and you want an aspirin, you need permission from your parents. But if you're in school and you need an abortion, then presumably you don't have to ask your parents for one. That's that's ridiculous. Louisiana also is pushing a fetal heartbeat bill. The measure which Governor John Bell Edwards, who's a Democrat, has already indicated he would sign, seeks to prohibit the abortion of an unborn human being with a detectable heartbeat. The ban would only take effect if a federal appeals court upholds similar legislation in Mississippi. That legislation was signed into law in March. The Louisiana bill's author is a Democrat named John Milkovich. He's repeatedly cited his religious beliefs in pushing the legislation forward. He says, God values human life, so do the people of Louisiana. That's not really a religious argument. That's basically just an argument that human life ought to be valued and human life begins at conception, as every science book that you have ever read says that it does. The Michigan legislature also passed a bill on Tuesday outlawing an abortion procedure commonly used during the second trimester, the dilation and evacuation procedure, in which a doctor dilates the patient's cervix and then removes the fetus with suction and medical tools like forceps, essentially cuts apart the baby in the womb and then sucks it out into a sink. To outlaw that procedure seems perfectly reasonable. Again, all of this is an attempt to protect human life. Now, what the left wishes to say is that this is an attempt to control women's bodies. This has always been a very weird argument to me. I don't understand why this has anything to do with quote-unquote control of a woman's body when it is clearly attempting to protect a separate body, that of the fetus, from the ravages of an abortion doctor. I understand that this fetus happens to be in the woman's body, but if men wanted to control women's bodies, do you think they'd really start with the uterus? Really, it's the uterus that men are really interested in? Evil sexist men, evil patriarchal men, what they are really interested in is controlling your uterus, or is that they have an actual... I mean, such it's such a straw man, ridiculous argument that men are interested... Like, I promise you, there are lots of other parts of women that most men are interested in. The uterus comes like way, way, way down on the list. What most people are interested in, male and female, is controlling what happens to the human life inside the womb. And this notion that the left has been pushing out, that true women are pro-abortion, absolute crap. The fact is, a huge number of women are pro-life. A huge number of women. In South Carolina, women who are registered voters outnumber men by some 300,000 people. South Carolina is an incredibly pro-life state. Governor Kay Ivey in Alabama is, in fact, a Republican. And she's and she signed the bill yesterday. She was asked a question about it by CBS. It didn't go well for the CBS reporter. All human life is precious. Where's the money coming from to support people who aren't ready to be mothers or aren't financially stable to take care of a child? You simply cannot uh, defer protecting lives of unborn children because of cost. Okay, of course, that is 100% true. This argument, which seems to be used by the left so often, this economic argument that your life is more better, uh, more better, your life is more successful economically if you abort babies and therefore it's okay to abort babies is a sick argument, a deeply sick argument. If your argument is that you can do anything that forwards you economically, including the killing of another human life, man, it doesn't get much worse than that. And that, that argument was made by Liz Plank, the fabulous feminist, feministabulist of, over at Twitter.com. Behind millions of successful men is an abortion they don't regret getting with their partner. I urge men to go beyond solidarity and talk about how they've personally benefited from abortion rights too. Not because it's the right thing for, not because it's the right thing for you to do, but because it's true. I'm amazed that feminists who five minutes ago were saying that men have nothing to say about abortion now are saying men need to stand up for abortion because they've benefited economically from their partners aborting the baby. By the way, nothing as scummy as a man who says, yes, I've economically benefited from my from the killing of my unborn child. I'm so glad that my female sex partner decided to do away with it. That sound like a guy that you want to marry, ladies? That sound like a dude you want to bring home to mother? Oh, I'm so glad she had an abortion. It's really made me... More success. I've, I've been able to work more hours at the office, and that's been great. Uh, sound, sounds like a delightful, delightful fellow. Now, what's, what's fascinating about all of this is that in New York, just a few months back, the New York legislature passed, legislature passed a bill that effectively legalizes abortion for any reason up till point of birth. It is an insanely radical bill, obviously. And the media didn't cover it that way. The media covered it as, oh, well, this is reasonable. The the right went crazy. The left suggested, no, this is totally, utterly reasonable. Listen, we're not putting our priorities on you. This is New York. 
Okay, Alabama passes a bill and Mississippi passes a bill and Georgia passes a bill and Louisiana's about to pass a bill, Missouri's about to pass a bill, and suddenly it's no, 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 this is a national attack on women. Really? It's a state, it's a state decision about abortion rights, so-called abortion rights. Right? These are state legislative actions. Now, what's fascinating is that it's the left that has insisted on nationalizing the issue through Roe versus Wade. Now, I think that the right should nationalize the issue, by the way. I'm in favor of a constitutional amendment to protect life. But that is likely not going to happen anytime soon, which means that effectively speaking, it is a federal issue. It's a federalist issue, meaning that each state gets to make its own decision. If Roe v. Wade were to disappear tomorrow, New York is not going to start outlawing abortions under the Constitution of the United States. It would take a constitutional amendment in order to change the law with regard to all of this sort of stuff. But what's amazing is Democrats suddenly suggesting that if Alabama passes a law, that it's a national issue. We'll talk about it in just one second. First, let's talk about your sleep quality. You know, I'm on the road today. That means I didn't sleep as well as I normally do. Why? Because when I'm at home, I get to sleep on a Helix sleep mattress. My Helix sleep mattress is just fantastic. Helix sleep has a quiz. It takes two minutes to complete. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you're a side sleeper or a hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or a firm bed with Helix, there's no more confusion and no more compromising. Helix Sleep is rated the number one mattress by GQ and Wired Magazine. CNN called it the most comfortable mattress they've ever slept on. Just go to helixsleep.com Ben. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. They will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you probably will. Helix is offering up to 125 bucks off all mattress orders for our listeners. Their, their mattresses are so good that my wife and I ordered one. We got rid of a more expensive mattress because this mattress is indeed so comfortable, so good. I got one for my sister for her wedding as well. Go check out helixsleep.com slash Ben for up to 125 bucks off your mattress order. Helixsleep.com slash Ben. Go check them out right now. So Democrats are claiming that these Alabama laws are attempting to, quote unquote, overturn the will of the majority. Where in Alabama, where this was voted for overwhelmingly by the legislature? Here's Tom Perez, head of the DNC, saying that it's the far right trying to overturn the will of the majority. Where? You know, states exist. Alabama has a legislature. So does Missouri. So does Louisiana. So does Georgia. But according to Tom Perez, they're trying to overturn the will of the majority. It's such a nonsensical argument he's about to make especially considering that the national policy on abortion was not set by a majority of American voters. It was instead set by a majority of the Supreme Court in 1973. Here's Tom Perez making a nonsensical argument. The far right has been attempting to overturn the the will of the majority. 70% of the American people say very clearly Roe versus Wade is the law of the land and leave these decisions up to women, up to families. Mm. It's a very personal decision. I don't pretend to be able to step in the shoes of somebody in that circumstance, and we shouldn't try to step in the shoes of someone in that circumstance. Okay, well, again, we, we shouldn't try to step into the shoes of someone in that circumstance. Well, we should if we're protecting a human life. You do not get to arbitrarily define human life. Every grave evil in human history has basically been based on the notion that you get to arbitrarily define away life to meet your vision of what the world should be. It's deeply, deeply dangerous stuff. Tom Perez didn't stop with his silliness there. He then all suggested we have to organize in all 50 states to save Roe versus Wade. Again, this makes no sense. Roe versus Wade is a Supreme Court decision. It doesn't matter what you organize in any state. It is a Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade. This is like saying we need to organize in all 50 states to overturn Obergefell. Well, you can't. It's a Supreme Court decision unless you are looking for a constitutional amendment to to protect the killing of the unborn. I don't see Tom Perez calling for that at this point. The mission of the Democratic National Committee is to elect Democrats up and down the ballot. And this unconscionable activity in Alabama is a stark reminder of the fact that we must continue to organize in all 50 states. I believe we can win in places and and we can win everywhere. We demonstrated that in 2018 and we're going to continue to organize everywhere because things that people thought were just well settled in the world of Trump are no longer well settled. And and this is exhibit A. Exhibit A. Okay, fine. Chuck Todd then makes the point on NBC that it's culture wars holding Republicans together. That's the real reason that Republicans care about all of this is because of the supposed culture wars, not because they actually care about abortion, which, by the way, is the number one animating issue for a huge swath of Republicans. I spoke at the March for Life. Three quarters of a million people showed up. They do every year. 
Hey, but Chuck Todd, Chuck Todd says, no, 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 this is all just, you know, it's just political pandering by Republicans, you know, as opposed to Democrats who, who say you should be able to kill a baby while it's in the birth canal, according to Kathy, uh, Kathy Tran, Virginia delegate in the House of Delegates. Here's Chuck Todd making the argument. It's just, it's just culture war stuff, guys. The pro-life movement's mission to get Roe v. Wade in front of this conservative Supreme Court is a bigger deal. And the president's escalating embrace of the culture wars is perhaps the biggest deal of them all. Because right now, the culture wars are this glue that holds the Republican Party together. Republicans are divided on issues like immigration, tariffs, and health care as matters of policy. But the president hasn't made those issues referendums on policy so much as he's made them flashpoints in a larger culture battle with immigrants. It's about what does America look like with the Chinese, with socialists, you name it. You get the picture. And in a way, he's made the GOP into a culture of Trump. Okay, so this idea that it's Republicans engaged in a culture war, but not Democrats is just silly. A culture war requires two sides. It is Democrats who have been pushing to legalize abortion all the way to point of birth. And Republicans who are pushing back against that by saying we want to ban abortion from point of conception. Now, this does raise a strategic question. It was interesting. Pat Robertson, who obviously is extremely pro-life, he came out yesterday. He said that he thinks the Alabama abortion law goes too far. He was on the 700 Club talking about this. I think Alabama has gone too far. They've passed a law that would give a 99-year prison sentence to people who could commit abortion. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law, and they want to challenge Roe versus Wade. But my humble view... <laughs> is that this is not the case we want to bring to the Supreme Court because I think this one will lose. Okay, so the, the point that Robertson is making here, people are jumping all over Robertson because they're suggesting, well, he's given up his pro-life bona fides. I think that there is a good, interesting argument to be had about whether the Alabama law, for example, is a law that is designed to achieve its purpose. What I mean by this is I've said all along, it's a moral law. I think it is a moral law to protect human life all the way back to conception, for all reasons. It is important to protect human life. Human life is either worth protecting or it is not worth protecting. And if you say that it is not worth protecting, you're going to have to explain why certain types of human life are not worth protecting. You're gonna to have to make a logical argument for that. Okay, but that's a different question from the strategy that should be adopted by the pro-life movement in pursuing the abolition of abortion. So to make an analogy, back before the Civil War, there were two positions on the abolition of slavery. Everyone who was in the Republican Party at that time, was, was, or the vast majority of the Republican Party, was built around the idea that, that slavery should be abolished. But there were two different approaches that were essentially being pushed. Approach number one was the William Lloyd Garrison approach, which was, okay, if we got to go to war, let's go to war. We got to abolish it across the country. Let's do it right now. It has to be done right this very instant. And William Lloyd Garrison was an extraordinarily polarizing figure specifically because of that. Now, you needed that. You needed William Lloyd Garrison speaking out on behalf of slaves, speaking out about the evils of slavery. It required a constant public relations battle from people like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison and people who are stark abolitionists. And then it required the political ingenuity of Abraham Lincoln in order to achieve the end of slavery. And if you look at Lincoln's progress in achieving the end of slavery, when the Civil War breaks out, Basically, it is the South that declares war. The South declares war because they think that Lincoln is going to abolish slavery. Lincoln is going around saying, no, 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 no. I'm not interested in abolishing slavery. I just want the preservation of the Union. Even when he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation only applies to states that he does not control as of yet, right? It only applies to, to the states that were part of the Confederacy, the Emancipation Proclamation. And even then, he makes many public statements about how he's against integration, how he's, how he's against all sorts of civil rights for black folks. Now, does that mean that Lincoln was morally right on all this? No, he's morally wrong on all of those points. But the fact is that Lincoln had to bring the American people along gradually. So the question here is incrementalism and what is effective versus the stark position. Now, again, you need both in the public conversation. The question is whether these pieces of legislation are actually going to be effective in achieving the goal of pushing that pushing back the line as to what is acceptable under American law and by the Supreme Court in terms of the pro-life position. So the two opposite sides of this position, that the, the Alabama bill is a good idea and that the Alabama bill is a bad idea on a tactical level, not in a moral level. These are presented by Ramesh Panuru over at Bloomberg on the one hand and David French on the other at National Review. So David, who's been on the radio show, good friend, he argues that Alabama and Georgia are doing the right thing by passing these, these very strict pro-life laws. 
And he says, it's time to throw down the gauntlet. It's time to test this thing up at the Supreme Court level. He says, both Alabama's abortion ban and Georgia's heartbeat law contain a key provision. They declare the personhood of the unborn child. This is a vital measure that is aimed directly at a key portion of the Roe versus Wade opinion. Late last week, I had a lengthy phone conversation with State Representative Ed Setzler, sponsor of Georgia's legislation. He said his bill wasn't waving its fist at Roe, it's answering Roe. Specifically, he pointed at a provision in Part 9 of Justice Blackmun's opinion, where Blackmun states that if the personhood of the baby is established, then the pro-abortion case collapses. The late Supreme Court Justice was, of course, discussing the definition of personhood under the federal constitution. Setzler, however, notes that the Supreme Court doctrine has long allowed states to expand constitutional liberties. They can establish standards of religious freedom, free speech, or due process, for example, that go beyond the First and Fifth Amendments. They cannot be more restrictive than the federal constitution. In the abortion context, this doctrine traditionally has been interpreted to allow states like New York to protect abortion rights beyond the minimal threshold required by Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Georgia and potentially Alabama would be asking the court to permit them to expand the constitutional liberty of the unborn child and to recognize the distinct human identity of the baby in the womb. In other words, Georgia and Alabama are saying we've we've read Roe and we're making the very legal statement that Justice Blackman says would fundamentally undermine the case for abortion. Under our federal system, we can expand the legal definition of life. He says, while pro-life Americans can and do engage in good faith debates about tactics. I prefer the most direct approach. Tell the court what life means. Make the court break the federal system once again. He says the timing is right. It's time for the court to rule on Roe so we know where we stand. He says if the court overturns Roe, rightfully holding that the federal constitution is silent on abortion, the battle turns to the states. If Roe is upheld and the legal battle over abortion is reduced, both now and for the foreseeable future to far more marginal issues like admitting privileges or clinic regulations or late-term abortion bans, pro-life Americans would understand that presidents and judges have treated them like Lucy with the football, inducing them to vote on the issue that is more important to them than any other, only to protect the status quo. He says, I know that in theory, the judges could overrule Roe through, say, an admitting privileges case, but why would that? Why would they instead? We have to challenge Roe. So that is perspective number one. It's time to challenge Roe. Now is the time. If we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? That's the case David French is making. Then there is the other perspective. I'm going to get to that in just a second as to the tactical usefulness of what Alabama and Georgia are doing. First, I love that Dollar Shave Club has everything I need to look, feel, and smell my best. What I love even more is the fact I never have to go to a store. That's because first, DSE delivers everything I need directly to my door. Two, they keep me fully stocked on what I use so I don't run out. Here's how it works. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to get ready, no matter what you're getting ready for. They have you covered head to toe for your hair, your skin, your face, you name it. They've got it. And they have this new program where they automatically keep you stocked up on the products you use. You determine what you want and when you want it. And it shows up right at your door from once a month to once every six months. That's what I do for their amber lavender body cleanser. My goodness, it smells delightful and it is calming. I mean, do I seem like a person who needs calm? You are correct. I do. And that's why I use the Amber Lavender Body Cleanser from Dollar Shave Club Plus. With their handsome discount, the more you buy, the more you save. And right now, they've got a bunch of starter sets you can try for just five bucks like their oral care kit. After that, the restock box ships regular sized products at regular price. So what in hell are you waiting for? Get your starter set for just five bucks right now at dollarshaveclub.com slash Ben. That is dollarshaveclub.com slash Ben. Again, they've got those starter sets you can try for just five bucks. And then keep the regular size products coming at regular price, dollarshaveclub.com slash Ben. Go check it out right now. So as I say, there are two perspectives on the Georgia and Alabama law from the pro-life perspective. And again, I agree with everything morally in the Alabama law down to the marrow of it. The question is whether it's going to be effective. So David French says, well, you know, Roe exists. This will be elevated to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will rule. And then we'll know where we stand. That's perspective number one. Go for it. Go for broke. Push it as hard as you can. William Lloyd Garrison. Then there is the Lincoln incrementalist approach. You know, and again, it's not that Lincoln was in favor of preserving slavery. It was that Lincoln saw a strategic value to gradually and incrementally bringing the American people there. This is the approach Ramesh Panuru is pushing over at Bloomberg.com, another person with whom I'm friendly. He says, for roughly 25 years, the movement against abortion has been predominantly incrementalist. Its focus has been on restricting abortion in relatively modest ways rather than amending the Constitution to prohibit it altogether. In the 1990s, pro-lifers began to campaign to ban a method of abortion they called partial birth. More recently, they have sought to ban abortions after 20 weeks of gestation. The theory behind this strategy is that changes to the law would reduce abortion rates. Debate over these changes would turn public opinion against abortion. Small victories today would enable bigger ones tomorrow. That day has come in the eyes of some pro-lifers, and then Ramesh quotes David French. And... Panuru says, nearly everyone who's active in the movement agrees with French that the ultimate goal should be that, as pro-life slogan has it, every child is welcomed in life and protected in law, which requires the overturning of Roe versus Wade. But people who agree on the goal are divided on how to get there. 
French is underestimating the practical advantages of gradual step-by-step progress. It's true, as he suggests, that the Supreme Court can allow limited measures, such as 20-week bans, without dismantling its abortion jurisprudence. If it took up a heartbeat bill, it would have to choose either to keep or scrap its precedence. A major pro-life objective would be in sight. But since heartbeat laws are flatly inconsistent with the precedence, the justices might not have to take them up in the first place. Lower courts would strike them down. The justices could merely decline to hear appeals. It takes four justices to take a writ of certiorari. The question is whether there are four justices who would even take up the heartbeat bills. So right now, supposedly, there are five conservative justices. In reality, there are three solidly conservative justices, and then there are two who are sort of on the fence. The three who are solidly conservative would be Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito. Those are the three who would probably take up a writ. And then you have Kavanaugh, who might not, and Roberts, who might not. Okay, that's a, so it's a, it's a bit of a dangerous game. You're passing these bills that could be struck down at the Court of Appeals level and never reach the Supreme Court. As Panuru says, let's say, though, that the case actually were taken up by the Supreme Court. French's argument presupposes some justices are on the fence. If so, wouldn't they be less likely to uphold a more far-reaching abortion restriction than to uphold a limited one? The upholding of a limited restriction would put future pro-life litigators in a stronger position to win more legal ground. The turning back of a more frontal challenge would put them in a worse one. In other words, if you push a full ban on abortion to the Supreme Court, it is easier to convince Justice Roberts to simply strike it down, and in doing so, to actually create damage. What I've been saying is that I think that the Supreme Court, if it's going to pare back its abortion rulings, is likely to do so by looking at the undue burden standard under Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This is a tactical consideration. Again, I agree with the morality of the Alabama law. Were I king, it would be a constitutional amendment. Okay, but the fact is, that the Supreme Court is still going to rule on this stuff. And when the Supreme Court rules on it, the most likely scenario is that they don't overturn Roe. I don't think you have five votes for that. And the most likely scenario is they don't overturn Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The most likely scenario is they do what they've been doing with, for example, partial birth abortion bans. And what they say is the undue burden standard allows for women to continue to have abortions until a certain point in pregnancy, but science is showing that we need to move that standard further and further back. The incrementalist position, in other words, is making it harder and harder for a woman to get an abortion later. And that is the most likely outcome. Now, let's say you come along with the Alabama bill and the Supreme Court just says, no, you know what? This disagrees with precedent. We're not looking at it. Or even worse, it gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, you know what? We can see your final intent here. And that means that we are shoring up the undue burden standard, that we are going to exacerbate the undue burden standard. That in fact, what we are going to try to do is limit abortion laws even more because we see that your end goal is not, in fact, to allow abortion to a particular point. It is instead to ban abortion utterly. You could easily see Justice Roberts signing on to an opinion, something like that. Okay? And that would be significantly damaging to the pro-life cause. Let's, let's take another example. So the Missouri law seems to me the best written of the ones that I have seen. The Missouri law says, look, we want to stop abortion at the heartbeat. If that doesn't hold, then we'll stop abortion at 14 weeks, 18 weeks, 20 weeks. And that gives the Supreme Court the option to broaden Planned Parenthood versus Casey or to strike down Roe versus Wade entirely. That is a better drawn law. What you want to do is keep fighting on the ground with which most Americans agree until you can shift American opinion on this. Here's what the opinion polls show. And listen, I know when it comes to morality, opinion polls don't matter, but they do when it comes to actually shifting the law because what you could get is a huge backlash from the quote-unquote moderate middle who are not convinced fully on the pro-life cause and who decide that it is too extreme. The Alabama law is too extreme. So let's elect a Democrat. So then the result of the Alabama law will be that it never goes into effect, that a Democrat is elected president of the United States, that Democrats take over the Senate, or that the Supreme Court ends up broadening abortion law rather than restricting abortion law. All of those would be very, very bad results. This is why I'm a little bit wary of the strategy. I think that it's coming from folks who are far too sanguine about the status of the Supreme Court right now. Ramesh Panuru tends to agree. He says, pro-lifers would consider it morally obligatory to press for the maximum feasible legal protection for unborn children that could be sustained over time. But the risks of a backlash that set back that protection would be substantial, particularly in some states. At each time and place, the pro-life task will be twofold putting into law those protections that command a consensus and working to change that consensus in the direction of more perfect justice. Each stage of this process of democratic persuasion will require difficult difficult judgments of what is achievable. This is is correct to me. This seems right. If you want to stop abortion, you have to look at what can actually be done. Spitting into the wind isn't going to do you a whole hell of a lot of good. 
Okay, in just a second, we're going to get to the 2020 race where you see Democrats immediately jumping on all of this for their own political gain. Again, that doesn't invalidate the morality for the thousandth time of the laws that are being passed. It does call into question the strategy. We'll get to that in just one second. First, head on over to dailywire.com and subscribe right now for $9.99 a month. For $9.99, you get $9.99 a month, you get an additional two hours of the show every single day. I mean, we are working hard here for you. Not only that, but also we have an episode of The Conversation. You know, every few weeks we do an episode of The Conversation. Unfortunately for you, the one today is with Michael Knowles, but you can still tune in 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. It's free to watch on Facebook and YouTube. Only subscribers can ask the questions. Subscribe, tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and join the conversation. Please ask Michael why he's still employed. I think every question should probably be that. Also, when you subscribe and get the annual, you get this, the very greatest in beverage vessels, the leftist years, hot or cold tumbler. As I say, it is magnificent. It is delicious. You will enjoy it. We're on the road, and today I decided I was going to even activate the decloaking button here so you actually can see it. But as I've said before, when you're on the road, sometimes it's cloaked, sometimes it's not. It, it does give you an immense amount of control. Also, when you subscribe, you get our Sunday specials on Saturday. And that means that you get early this week's Sunday special starring Carly Fiorina, who stopped by for a chat. If we want to reconnect the social fabric, we have to rebuild relationships. And the most effective way to build relationships is collaborate with somebody else and solve a problem. Don't talk up here in abstract. Get down on the ground and solve a problem. Okay, so go check that out right now. Carly Fearon is just terrific. And you'll see the entire hour-long conversation considers consider politics and business and what it's like to be a powerful female in a world that, that sometimes is not super friendly to that. Carly and I disagree about some of that stuff, but she is just first rate. And you're going to really enjoy the conversation. So please go check that out. Subscribe. Leave us a review over at YouTube or iTunes. That always helps us. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. <laughs> So Democrats are attempting to jump into the fray on this abortion debate and make hay while the sun shines. They're doing so in some of the most dishonest ways I've ever seen. We'll get to the 2020 candidates in just a second. First, I have to show you how Alexander Ocasio-Cortez responded to all of this. So the inimitable AOC, brilliant, brilliant woman, she tweeted out, Alabama lawmakers are making all abortions a felony punishable with jail time, including women victimized by rape and incest. Of course, no added punishments for rapists. It's going to Governor Kay Ivey's desk. She will decide the future of women's rights in Alabama. Okay, so she's just lying here. The Alabama law does not criminalize the women. Okay, women who are victimized by rape and incest do not go to jail. And when somebody pointed this out, AOC then started to lie. Liz Wheeler pointed this out, and AOC started to lie like a rug. She said, actually, it would be a felony for women if those women are medical providers. See, according to your own semantic standard, you lied. We can fact check obvious semantics all day and make absurd bad faith claims if that's how you want, if you, how you want be, but I have better uses for my time. Uh, no, you don't. Then, then saying silly things, AOC, no, no, no. You do that like full time. So she just lies, right? Her original tweet is women who are victimized by rape and incest could go to jail. And then when called on that, she goes, what I meant was female abortion doctors. Boom, mic drop. What a liar she is. Okay, but she's not the only one who is lying. Kirsten Gillibrand, who is, of course, one of the foremost Democratic contenders for 0% of the vote. You know, let's play some Kirsten Gillibrand theme music. What do you mean? She's taking every position on every possible topic. That is true for gun rights. And now on abortion, she is taking the position that Alabama passes a law and somehow that is a national attack on reproductive freedom. Please explain, Kirsten Gillibrand, how states that are not New York are passing laws that don't affect New York and that's a national attack on reproductive freedom. We have to shine a light on this issue. We have to raise up voices of the women who will be affected by this draconian and inhumane policy. And make no mistake, this is a nationwide attack on women's reproductive freedom, on their basic civil rights and basic human rights. Uh, over 29 states in this year alone are attacking women's constitutional rights. Uh, and we have to fight. We have to fight now harder than we have ever fought before. Inspiring stuff from a woman whose immediate family might vote for her in a primary. So Kirsten Gillibrand pushing this. Cory Booker goes even further. Cory Booker, you know, Spartacus, as it were. Ah, there's his music. Cory Booker, such a brave individual. He comes forward, he says, I'll even pass a bill legalizing abortion nationwide. So who's nationalizing the issue now, Cory Booker? 
Alabama passes a law. New York passes a law. You say you want New York's law to govern everyone. Ah, Cory Booker. But don't worry. It's only Republicans who want to nationalize the abortion issue, even though Roe versus Wade nationalized what had been at that point a state issue. Those of us who are running for president have a chance to affect the national conversation. We are not helpless in this fight. Uh, In the face of extreme injustice, we must organize and we must do the kind of things that New York did, which was enshrining uh, Roe v. Wade, codifying that in law. And we can actually do that in Congress by uh, passing a bill that protects women's reproductive rights and make that the federal law of the land. Okay, so it's pretty amazing. Again, Democrats, people like Chuck Todd saying that this is these culture wars, they only animate Republicans. You have Democratic candidates saying they want national laws that allow abortion basically up to a point of birth, like New York. Federal laws that do that. But don't worry, Democrats are certainly not nationalizing the abortion issue. Then you have Elizabeth Warren, who is fear-mongering in the extreme. She says they're over. They're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Ah, Pocahontas. Yeah, she, she's, she's a very moving candidate, you know, Pocahontas. So anyway, Elizabeth Warren, our Native American senator from, from Oklahoma, Oh, no, she's from Massachusetts. Yeah, my bad. In any case, Elizabeth Warren, she uh, she's been doing these little Instagram AOC type videos where she where she films herself in her kitchen. By the way, we need to start a petition. Get Elizabeth Warren out of the kitchen. Get her out of the kitchen. She is a strong, powerful woman. There is no reason she needs to film herself in the kitchen. Doesn't she have like a den or something? Anyway, Elizabeth Warren says they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. First of all, from her mouth to God's ears. But I really don't think this is what's going to happen. Republican men are on the march to overturn Roe versus Wade. And with Donald Trump stacking the courts in favor of uh, judges who are opposed to abortion, that could be a real possibility. Women across this country are scared. Women are angry. If you support women, now is the time to make that known. Okay, this is this crap that all women are on Elizabeth Warren's side on abortion is just absolute sheer garbage. It is not true. And there's a vast divide in female opinion on the life versus abortion issue. And there is a vast divide in male opinion on the life versus abortion issue. In fact, there are certain polls that show that women are pro-life generally than men are. But I guess Democrats are going to keep on riding this horse. Well, speaking of horses that just won't ride, apparently there are a couple of new Democratic candidates who are going to jump in the race. I know I'm very excited about it. You know who announced this week? You know who announced yesterday? Billiam de Blasio, the mayor of New York and and notorious groundhog serial killer. Groundhog. Groundhog. (laughs) The theme music for groundhog serial killer, Bill de Blasio. So Bill de Blasio has announced his candidacy and everybody is looking at each other going, why? Why is that? Why? He's a terrible mayor of New York. He's helped just like Los Angeles or Seattle major cities around the country, governed by Democrats that used to be really shiny and nice, now turning into pits. Bill de Blasio has decided he wants to take that national. So Bill de Blasio unleashed an announcement video. It was not a great announcement video for president. It was more of an announcement video for mayor. He also happened to maybe violate the law by doing this announcement video from the back of a city-owned vehicle, which is using city resources for campaigns. Here is Bill, uh, what is possessing Bill de Blasio to do this other than he looks at Mayor Pete Buttigieg and he's like, that guy is the mayor of South Bend, which has like five people. And I'm the mayor of New York. Why shouldn't I run for president of the United States? Here's Bill de Blasio's silly announcement video. Doesn't matter if you live in a city or a rural area, a big state, a small state, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. People in every part of this country feel stuck or even like they're going backwards. But the rich got richer. I'm a New Yorker. I've known Trump's a bully for a long time. This is not news to me or anyone else here. And I know how to take him on. As president, I will take on the wealthy. I will take on the big corporations. I will not rest until this government serves working people. As mayor of the largest city in America, I've done this just that. De Blasio for president, guys. Donald okay, Trump he found the one person in New York who would say De Blasio for president. By the way, polls show that no one in New York wants Bill De Blasio to run for president. No one. Nobody even wants him really to be mayor. It's just that he's sort of the Democrat who's there. It's really hilarious. You know who'd actually make a good mayor of New York, seriously? AOC would make a good mayor of New York because she's basically Bill de Blasio, but better at it. She, I mean, she'd suck as mayor. When I say she'd make a good mayor of New York, I mean, she'd be a terrible mayor. But if you're going to elect a communist as mayor of your city, you may as well elect a Democratic Socialist of America who puts an attractive face on this stupidity. Bill de Blasio, the best part of this was de Blasio announced on GMA, on Good Morning America, this morning that he was running for president. 
Good Morning America is filmed in New York. Protesters gathered outside the GMA studio to chant liar at him while he was making his announcement, which is a great way to go. Here's some footage of it. Outside are chanting liar as he announces his presidential run at Good Morning America. So things are going great for Bill de Blasio. He, though, is not the only candidate who announced yesterday that he was running for president. There's a guy named Steve Bullock. You've never heard about him. No, no, not, not Bullock like the guy from Deadwood, like Steve Bullock. He's the governor of Montana. Nobody knows who he is. And he's in Montana, which means he has like seven constituents because Montana's a great state, but like seven people live there. In fact, there are, there are more senatorial seats for Montana, I believe, than congressional seats. Isn't that correct? Or am I screwing up my states? In any case, Steve Bullock, uh, his, we have a little bit of Steve Bullock theme music, which I think we will only end up playing once, unfortunately. On the first part of the journey I was looking at all so, Steve Bullock, you know, really doing yeoman's work. No, I'm correct about this. Montana only ha- has two senators and one representative in the U.S. House of Representatives. So, like, seven people live there. And he's like, you know what? I'm running for president. And then he was asked an unfortunate question. Steve Bullock, please name, you've been governor of the state for seven years. Please name a accomplishment. Not like a lot of them, just like a accomplishment. One accomplishment. Here's Steve Bullock really demonstrating why he should be president of the United States. What have you been proudest to achieve as governor? Um, I am happy that hopefully my kids still know my most important job is being their dad. I think the things where, you know, as governor, it's not like attorney general when you know you won or lost a case. Sometimes you won't have impacts for years. Okay, um, so he has nothing, and he, he's a great dad. Well, well, that's good. I mean, I'm glad he's a great dad. I'm a great dad. I don't think that that means that I'm qualified to be president of the United States on that basis. So there's that. That's, that's great. Meanwhile, the candidate who is just plummeting, who's just falling apart, is Beto. Remember that time that Beto was like the romantic frontrunner? Remember that time that Beto was just, he was going to be the guy, right? He was going to channel that RFK, Obama energy. He was going to come out of nowhere and sweep to victory. And then it turns out that he's a giant weirdo. So Beto theme music, please. Yeah, bro. So Beto, riding that skateboard nowhere, really enjoying himself, flipping those bangs out of his Well, yesterday, it turned out his bangs were even too long for Beto. And Beto was like, you know what, bro? need a haircut. So he went over to the barber shop and then he live streamed his haircut because he didn't learn anything from when he live streamed his dental appointment. So now we're going to get Beto in just real life situations, man. We got to feel with Beto what it's like to be Beto. And that means you're going to see him on the can. It means that you're going to see Beto at his proctologist appointment. I hope you're ready for that one, brah. But you're also going to see Beto get a haircut in the most awkward possible way. Yeah, play it, brah. Everybody, we're at Chema's in El Paso, uh, getting a haircut after after being on the road for uh, almost two weeks. So more connections between high schools and, and unions, high school students and apprenticeships. I don't even know what's going on right now. I have, maybe I'm ignorant about haircuts. I've never seen something like this at a barbershop, but I guess this is a thing. Say so he's getting some sort of some sort of massage from the guy, and the guy's standing there looking like, why is this even happening to me? He's like the dental hygienist who had no idea why this was all happening. At one point during this haircut appointment, Beto O'Rourke started talking about his ear hair with his barber. It's like, TMI, dude. Nobody wants to be that close to you. So things getting very awkward in the 2020 Democratic presidential race. No wonder that Joe Biden looks like a sane person by comparison. Because truly, the number of sane people in this race, I mean, now you got Bill de Blasio and Beto and Cory McBooker. I mean, th- this, this field is now 23 people. There are more, uh, 24 people? Basically, th- this field has now become two dozen eggs. It's crazy. It's crazy. There are 24 people in this race. Uh, yeah, this is this is going great for the Democrats. Okay, time for some things I like, and then we'll do some things that I hate. So, things that I like today. So, yesterday I was on a plane. When I'm on a plane, that means it's time to watch a movie, gang. So, I watched Cold Pursuit. Now, this was the movie 
that had one of the great previews of all time because the entire movie is Liam Neeson as a snowplow driver. And this created all sorts of memes about Mr. Plow, you know, from The Simpsons. Mr. Plow. They really should have called the movie Mr. Plow. Cold Pursuit is a bad name for the movie. It was an, ad- an adaptation of a, of a movie, I guess, from Denmark, I think. Uh, and, the, and the movie is actually kind of hysterically good. So the movie is super politically incorrect. It is very odd. It has, it has almost a, a no country for old men. It, it really has a Fargo feel to it. It kind of feels like Fargo. And it's, it's got some really laugh out loud funny moments. Here's a little bit of the trailer. I'm very honored to be named Kehoe Citizen of the Year. I'm just a guy who keeps a strip of civilization open. When you drive the same road day after day, it's easy to think about the road not taken. I was lucky. I picked a good road early, and I stayed on it. Mr. Coxman? What can I do for you? It's about your son. So basically, his son dies, and then he decides to take revenge on the entire drug ring that killed him. But the movie, so it's pitched as a serious revenge drama. It is utterly unserious. It's actually really, really funny. So this is one of the problems with ad campaigns for films. Very often, what you get from the ad campaign is not actually what the film is. So if you watch Cold Pursuit's trailer, what you get from it is that this is going to be the most serious. It's it's basically taken, but with a snowplow. That's what it is. That is not what the movie is at all. It's really hysterically quirky and weird and funny. There's a, a whole there's a whole scene. There's I don't want to give it away, but there is one scene that is just really funny. Some one of the characters is this this Native American drug lord, and he and his crew go to a hotel and they're trying to get a room. And they walk up to the desk and the and they don't have a reservation. And the woman behind the desk says, "I think you need to. I, I I'm looking here and I see that you you don't have a reservation." And they, and they look at her, they look at her like, what did you just say to us? And she doesn't understand what just happened. And then they explain that in that, that according to them, she said that they should go back to the reservation and that they will threaten her on Yelp if she does not in fact give them a room. <laughs> it's, it's a very funny scene. In any case, the movie itself is, is really weird, quirky and fun. Go check out Cold Pursuit if you're into dark humor, because that's really what it is. Okay. Time for some things that I hate. Okay, so the SATs were supposed to provide an objective metric of performance, of student performance. Now, you can take SAT training courses, but they are only going to move you somewhat in one direction. You're not going to move from 1,100 to 1,400 on the SATs just with an SAT prep course. SATs are basically a stand-in for an IQ test. They're a soft form of an IQ test. But the problem is that SAT distributions are not even across racial groups. And this has led to admissions that are lower for certain groups than for other groups. Now, the, the lowest group is, is in, by, by racial data is black folks, but the highest group is not white folks in the United States. By leaps and bounds, the highest group in terms of average SAT score are Asian Americans. The average Asian American in America scores 1223. That's the average score anyway. No one scores an actual 1223. But the, the average score for Asians is 1223. That is the average. For whites, 1123. For Hispanics, 990. And for blacks, 946. This has led the college board to now assign an adversity score to every student who takes the SAT to try to capture their social and economic background, jumping into the debate raging over race and class in college admissions. The new number is calculated using 15 factors, including the crime rate and poverty levels from the student's high school and neighborhood. So in other words, we're not going to look at the individual. Instead, we're just going to use Census Bureau data from the area where you grew up and then make assumptions about how you grew up. We're going to assume that somebody who grew up in a richer neighborhood obviously experienced less adversity than somebody who grew up in a poorer neighborhood. We're going to assume that based on racial group that you experienced more adversity than somebody who's a member of a different racial group. The the college board is not releasing, by the way, any of the factors that they are using. The adversity score is is not actually a score of individual adversity, is in fact a group judgment. So it is the it is the nature of this thing to be racially discriminatory. And this will particularly affect Asians, who of course are scoring leaps and bounds above everybody else on the SAT. And the fact that the college board will not actually demonstrate exactly how they come up with this stuff is pretty incredible. Now the college board had tried this several years back, and then it turned out that people saw that this was just a stand-in for race and they got uptight. Nonetheless, 
The College Board is trying it again. Here, quote, this is according to the Wall Street Journal. The College Board declined to say how it calculates the adversity score or weighs the factors that go into it. The data that informs the score comes from public records, such as the U.S. Census, as well as some sources proprietary to the College Board. So we're not going to look at whether the rich kid lost mom at age 11 from breast cancer or whether the poor kid had a solid two-parent family. Instead, we're going to look at is just the Census Bureau data from that specific area. That is the essence of trumping individual data with group data. It is the, uh, which is discrimination. Okay, I've talked about this before. Thomas Sowell has three types of discrimination that he talks about. One is discrimination that is fine, right? This is, you discriminate in what you eat every night. Do you want a burger or do you want a vegetarian meal? That's, That's fine discrimination, no one cares about it. Then there is open discrimination, which is you are of a particular race, therefore you are lesser. And no matter what individual data is presented to me, then I will continue to say that because you are of a particular race, you are lesser. That is open discrimination. And then finally, there is the, and then finally, there is the third type of discrimination, which is what he calls discrimination 1A, which is using group data in the absence of individual data. So I don't know anything about you, but now I have to make a call as to what is the most probable things I know about you from outside indicators. But if I get individual data, I will trump the the group data with the individual data. The College Board is not engaging in discrimination 1A. They're engaging in open discrimination. In other words, they're not going to look at your specific circumstance. They're going to look at the group data and then assign you a group in order to give or take away points from you. Anthony Carnival is director of Georgetown University's Center on Education and the Workforce. He originally worked for the College Board. He says the purpose is to get to race without using race. That is obviously the case. That is obviously the case. That is discrimination. It should be illegal. Discrimination on the basis of race is illegal in the United States. That's pretty amazing stuff. All right. We'll be back here a little bit later today with two additional hours of content. If you want to see those additional hours, you should subscribe at Daily Wire. Otherwise, we'll see you here tomorrow for our Friday broadcast. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. The College Board adds a new adversity score to the SAT. Grievance goes mainstream. We will examine social justice and its opposite. You know, actual justice. Check it out at The Michael Knowles Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 